millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Katie Stallard, and you're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. And then later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. Today, I'm speaking to Bonnie Glazer, the director of the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States and a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute, as well as a senior associate with the Pacific Forum. We'll be discussing the ongoing fallout from Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan and whether this marks the start of a new crisis in the Taiwan Strait. Bonnie, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me. We have seen an extraordinary series of exercises from the Chinese military in recent days with reports that they may have fired missiles, in fact, over Taiwan. So let me start by asking you about what is behind all this and what is the signal that China is trying to send with these exercises? China's military exercises against Taiwan are unprecedented. We've never seen missiles fly over Taiwan. We have never seen the extent of economic coercion measures taken against Taiwan. And also, the Chinese have now suspended a series of dialogues with the United States. So the reaction is really quite strong. I think the message the Chinese are sending is that they believe that their red lines are quite close to being crossed by the United States and and Taiwan. They see the United States as the term that they use is salami slicing. It's one China policy. They believe that the United States may be on a slippery slope toward recognizing Taiwan as an independent state. And they feel that if they do not respond to this visit by Pelosi, that the United States might view this as a green light to continue taking these incremental measures that challenge what the Chinese see as their sovereignty and territorial integrity. So they are really trying to get the intention of the United States and Taiwan. They want to shore up their red lines and prevent a real crisis from happening down the road. Is the U.S. changing its policy on Taiwan? Is it reasonable for Beijing to think that that is what's happening here? In my view, the United States is not deliberately changing its policy. 
toward Taiwan, but it has sent many confusing signals about whether its policy is really consistent. The first thing that does need to be said is that China has been putting enormous amount of pressure on Taiwan. It has been diplomatic, it has been military, even before this Pelosi visit. And the United States has been responding to reassure Taiwan, to also to send signals to China of deterrence, to try and stop this pressure from getting out of control and, of course, prevent China from actually using force against Taiwan. So a good deal of it has been in reaction to Chinese moves. But also there are some things that are somewhat unexplained. And I think that the messages coming from the United States have been confusing. So it's not this coherent plan to change U.S. policy. Early in the Biden administration, the United States sent its sitting ambassador in Palau to visit Taiwan. That was unprecedented. And then there was recently an episode where the webpage on the State Department, they have these pages for each country in the world, even though we don't recognize Taiwan as a country. There was a webpage for Taiwan and the State Department revised it and took out the sentence that we don't support Taiwan independence. And only weeks before, President Biden had told uh, Xi Jinping that we don't support Taiwan independence. And then a few weeks later, they reinserted that language and reposted it. Of course, finally, I would just add that the president's messages himself have been unhelpful. He has said publicly several times that the United States will defend Taiwan if China attacks it. He's president. He has that prerogative. But at the same time, he has said, we have a commitment to do that. Well, we don't. Under the Taiwan Relations Act, the guides our relationship with Taiwan ever since 1979, we have an obligation to sell arms. We need to keep a robust military presence in the region and the Western Pacific. But that language in the Taiwan Relations Act doesn't include any obligation to defend Taiwan. We had an obligation under a mutual defense treaty with Taiwan from 1954 to 1979, and then we broke that treaty when we normalized diplomatic relations with the People's Republic of China. So a lot of confusing signals. I fear we've gone from strategic ambiguity to strategic confusion. On the other side of this, there has been a lot of discussion, particularly in the media here in the United States lately, about possible timelines for Xi to consider launching an invasion of Taiwan, which is surely only going to increase given what we're now seeing around Taiwan. How do you view the situation and what do you think would really be the determining factors in Xi deciding to launch a a military assault against Taiwan? Well, the only potential deadline or timeline that Xi Jinping himself has talked about is at the 19th Party Congress, which was in 2017. He said that reunification is a requirement for national rejuvenation. And the target for that goal, of course, is the mid-century, the 100th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China. A lot of people consider that to be a soft deadline because Xi Jinping will be 95 at that time. And according at least to actuarial tables, he probably won't be president and uh, of China and head of the Chinese Communist Party. So really, the question is, could he move that forward? Could he use force against Taiwan? Of course, there is a possibility. If the United States were to recognize Taiwan as independent, if Taiwan itself declared independence, if we really do very clearly challenge China's sovereignty. This would be seen as a 
threat to the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that they would be forced to respond, even if they felt that China didn't necessarily have the capability to seize and control Taiwan. And that is a question mark as to whether the Chinese military is ready. So again, there's been confusing discussion in the United States about some deadlines. We had our former Indo-PACOM commander, Phil Davidson, talk about 2027 as a deadline. China's going to use force, he suggested, in the next six years. That's the anniversary of the People's Liberation Army. China may have some defense and military capabilities deadlines, but they've never been connected to a takeover of Taiwan explicitly. And certainly there is no other deadline. So the only question we're really talking about is whether 2049 itself is a deadline. But there are so many factors that Xi Jinping will take into account or China's leader at the time. And any leader is going to make his cost-benefit analysis and decide whether or not it is necessary to reunify Taiwan through use of force. Are there problems with effectively reducing this to that binary choice of invasion or, or no invasion? What are the other options, the other tools that Beijing has to bring to bear that we should really be thinking about here? Well, that's absolutely the right question, Katie. And I think that too many people are focused on the invasion scenario and not on all the other things that China is doing and can do. We've already seen China poach eight of Taiwan's diplomatic allies, those that still recognize Taiwan uh, diplomatically since Tsai Ing-wen was elected in 2016. And we've seen, even before this, some economic pressure, now a good deal more. They've blocked, I believe I was told today, over 2,000 items from being imported into China. But there's so much else that China does. It's disinformation, it's cyber attacks on Taiwan. Their goal is really to instill a sense of psychological despair in the population, to uh, convince them that their own government really can't do anything to stop unification. They should just therefore surrender, get it over with, and cut the best deal they can while they have an opportunity. And they also want to convince the people of Taiwan that the United States is unreliable and really can't save them. And that has been the message that the Chinese are telling Taiwan in the aftermath of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that the United States did not come and rescue Ukraine. We didn't put military troops on the ground. We certainly, therefore, will not come to save Taiwan. So I think these, what we call these gray zones, because they stay under the threshold that would trigger the United States to use force in response. And that's an area that China has a huge toolbox of things that it can do against Taiwan. And so I think they're going to do more and more of that going forward. I think their preference is not to use force against Taiwan and achieve unification through force, which would end up in a really bad scenario in terms of trying to rule Taiwan after they invaded it. So I think peaceful solution is really the best outcome. One brief follow-up on that, which is there a danger that this actually pushes this in the opposite direction, that by trying to coerce Taiwan, by trying to exert all this psychological pressure, that they actually compound the, the current situation and drive Taiwan further from any consideration of, of 
ever accepting what they would call unification with Beijing? Well, I think what you describe is what is happening now. Of course, their actions against Hong Kong were interpreted by Taiwan as meaning China is just not trustworthy, would never even give them one country, two systems and the freedoms that they promised to give Hong Kong since they they took those back. So uh, the Taiwanese before Hong Kong and the crackdown that started in really in, in 2019 didn't really support or believe that one country, two systems was ever the right model for them anyway. But it just, I think, was really the nail in the coffin. And we have seen so many developments since then that have led that Taiwanese to increasingly feel that any kind of unification scenario is just not in their interest. And of course, a lot of time has passed since the separation, since Taiwan was taken over by the Republic of China when Chiang Kai-shek came in, in 1949 after being defeated on the mainland. And the older generation is really dying out. The younger generation has grown up in this incredibly free society with absolutely no ties to China other than maybe seeing it as a place to do business, make money, get an education, but it's not home. It's not their country. So I think attitudes in Taiwan have changed fundamentally. And I think as China continues to use these kind of aggressive, even if it's just gray zone, not kinetic action against Taiwan, that you're absolutely right. We are going to see attitudes further harden in Taiwan against having any kind of a political connection to China. So yes, this is counterproductive, but I think that the Chinese are a little frustrated themselves. They've tried everything. They've tried positive inducements. They have tried threats. They have tried actual consequences on Taiwan and nothing's working very well. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's €1 a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including Ian McEwan on wrestling with Orwell's Inside the Whale. Might we reasonably assume that there is no longer an inside to the whale? That the creature lies stranded on the beach, as whales sometimes are? That the guts and blubber and ribcage are on display? A year inside GB News with Stuart McGurk. At first, the problems weren't ideological, but practical, technical and quite, well, obvious and Maria Wilczek on Belarusian football fans who took on Alexander Lukashenko. After the August 2020 protests, hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Beyond the very dramatic military exercises that we've seen in the past days, what do you see as the real critical issues to pay attention to in the weeks and months ahead here? And I guess also, particularly, what do you view as the greatest risks for escalation here? Well, I'm quite worried about a potential Chinese ambition to permanently change the status quo in the Taiwan Strait. And those of us who have followed China's previous actions, for example, in the East China Sea in the Senkakus in 2012, when the Japanese government purchased three of the Senkaku Islands from a private owner, and the Chinese reacted very strongly. It was also in the run-up to a party congress. And they started sending their Coast Guard ships very close to the Senkakus inside the 12 nautical mile territorial sea and have kept up those kind of operations ever since then. Sometimes it happens more frequently or less frequently, a few ships or maybe more ships. And I think that for them was, for China, was an opportunity, which they seized to change the status quo in China's favor. So we could think about what are they trying to do now in the Taiwan Strait? Are they trying to show that they can and will operate anywhere in the Strait? They're not going to stay on their side of the media line. Maybe they will even operate in Taiwan's airspace and sea space. Again, that's the 12 nautical miles that extends from Taiwan's coast. Maybe they'll start flying drones more over the outer islands. So this could be a new normal that China is really trying to create. Before this crisis, it was reported that U.S. officials had been told by people in China, and especially in the Chinese military, that China uh, would not respect Taiwan as uh, international waters. And that really has raised some concerns. And so you could see how they could now try to 
enforce the entire Taiwan Strait as an area where it's not just their exclusive economic zone in which they have rights to fish, for example, but also maybe their inner sea that where they have the same rights as in that 12 nautical mile territorial space. And if they try to exert those rights, which they're not entitled to under the Convention on the Law of the Sea, that could be really escalatory because the United States, I believe, will challenge them. If China interferes with a U.S.-Taiwan Strait passage, that will be seen as as undermining the the rules-based international order. And it would put at risk our ability to sail in in, in waters all over the world, the United States will not, as they say, take that sitting down. They will respond. And we've already heard the U.S. spokesman, I believe, say, I think it was at the, at the White House, that after China finishes its military exercises, we will conduct several transits through the Taiwan Strait. What do you make of the argument that she is facing serious domestic pressure at home here, that particularly ahead of the 20th Party Congress? this autumn and having ramped up nationalism and sentiment over Taiwan to the extent that he has, that he now really needs to be seen to deliver off response. This is really the $60,000 question because we don't have any visibility really into Chinese decision-making. The Chinese officials and experts certainly tell me and other Americans that the Chinese government has to listen to public opinion. I think public opinion is a factor, but of course it's not the same as it is in a democracy. But I do think it matters. Uh, And I think that if Xi Jinping is seen as not handling correctly the issue of Taiwan and defending China's territorial integrity and its sovereignty, if he is seen as soft on the United States, that there will be a reaction, not just among the average public, but among the elite. And but let's remember that the party itself has 95 million members. There could be criticism of Xi Jinping. I don't think it would prevent him from getting what he wants in uh, his third term in power. But perhaps personnel arrangements are not completed. Maybe he would end up with some people in offices that maybe otherwise he would have had his own loyalists there. So people he didn't prefer. We don't know. I've been told by Chinese experts during this crisis that the public outrage in China has been absolutely unprecedented, the highest they've ever seen. Apparently, there was so many Chinese following Pelosi's trip that Weibo collapsed. It, it, it went down and there has been a lot of activity in social media saying, I'm told again, that, that the, the public wanted China to react more strongly and they are dissatisfied. I think that the leadership can control this public opinion, but I also think that perhaps the leadership itself is fearful of what that might mean. I think the Chinese leadership is afraid of its people. I I ultimately think it's a factor, and I think that we should take it into account, but we should also not buy China's own narratives that they have to listen to their uh, public opinion, because after all, the Chinese Communist Party guides public opinion. It is not led by the nose, (laughs) by its own people. So last question, because I know we're running a little short on time. The last major crisis we saw in the Taiwan Strait was 95 to 96. What we've come to talk about is the third Taiwan Strait crisis. And on that occasion, we saw the US sending two aircraft carriers to the region and China effectively backing down. 
In your view, are we now heading towards, or are we already in a fourth Taiwan Strait crisis? And is it clear to you in this instance how that would end? Well, I think we are in the fourth Taiwan Straits crisis. And the only reason the U.S. hasn't sent their carriers closer to Taiwan is because today the Chinese can use missiles and their aircraft to put those carriers at risk. And in 1996, they did not have that capability. So we could sail and fly anywhere with impunity. But the reaction of the Chinese, I think, and the U.S. military assets that are deployed in the region, the, we, the Chinese ambassador was demarched today by senior NSC officials. You know, all of this suggests we, we are in a crisis. And I think that the Chinese are going to finish up their exercises in a couple of days. They have signaled that they will do so. The United States will transit the Taiwan Strait. There will be some other actions that will be taken. It is unfortunate that the Chinese have canceled some of our ongoing dialogues because I think at this juncture, we really do need closed-door, candid dialogue to understand each other's intentions, our red lines, and to figure out a way forward. Communication channels are still open between our presidents and our highest-level officials, and I hope that they are used. So, I guess maybe the silver lining is we are in a crisis. It hasn't been an accident or a kinetic crisis. We haven't had a collision of aircraft, for example. Nobody's died, and that's good news. Maybe this will shake up the governments and the leaders on both sides to understand how important it is to prevent these kinds of crises that can escalate out of control, because neither side would benefit from the military conflict. Well, I think that's a good, if stark, place to wrap this up. Bonnie Glazer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. This has been The World Review from The New Statesman. You can read all of our international coverage on our website, newstatesman.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend and please rate us and leave a nice review. The producer has been Adrian Bradley. The team will be back later in the week. I'm Katie Stallard. Thanks for listening and until next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.